0: Welcome to the County Pulse, Episode 5. This product is developed by the Virginia Association of Counties and shares with our listeners the pulse of Virginia counties. I'm Joe Lurch, VACO Director of Local Government Policy, and your host for today's podcast on utility-scale solar energy projects. We'll be exploring the local land use and potential revenue impacts to counties of this emerging type of energy production. With me today in the podcast booth is Chris McDonald, VACO Director of Government Relations, and our special guest, Darren Coffey, CEO of the Berkeley Group. The Berkeley Group is a consulting firm for local governments that specializes in a suite of local government services. Today, we're drawing on Darren's expertise and experience in land use planning and zoning and how it interacts with local decision-making policy. Before we get started, I think we need to set the stage on what exactly is utility-scale solar energy. It's basically uh, solar photovoltaic panels uh, set out in a rural setting where one megawatt of power generated takes up about eight to roughly 12 acres of land. And we're seeing projects ranging in size from as small as six megawatts all the way up to 300 megawatts or 500 megawatts, taking up thousands if not square miles of, uh, of land for this type of use. By comparison, if you take the natural gas plant in Warren County operated by Dominion Acres that produces 1,337 megawatts, it takes up only 39 acres of land. So it gives you kind of the scale of what we're talking about. So Darren, what is the work that you've been doing out in Virginia counties related to this topic?
1: So about a year and a half ago, Mecklenburg County uh, was asking for some help, um, as a lot of counties have done uh, throughout the Commonwealth. I think they've tried to do it on their own, and Mecklenburg was looking at uh, the possibility of numerous applications coming into a fairly concentrated area. So uh, we started working with them to see what their issues were, and uh, and it's just kind of gone from there. Uh, we're currently in Greensville County uh, basically doing the same thing. So the issues uh, tend to be universal, but the nuances are definitely local, uh, which you know makes it a local issue. And like a lot of land use issues, there's some state conversation going on about uh, how the state could maybe do some exemptions here or there and uh that would be a bad idea just like it is with most most land uses just because it, it is all local. Uh Mecklenburg didn't have anything in their comprehensive plan. Uh they chose to address it proactively as a use. Um you know, this use has been around for about five minutes. You know, about fifteen years ago you'll remember cell towers, you know, were all the rage and this is the, the newest, latest, greatest land use. But there are nuances to it, uh, mostly due to the scale, uh, due to location, uh, and the impacts that that can have on a community. Some communities are very excited about it. Some are less excited about it. Um, so the reasons just kind of vary.
0: Yeah, I think you and I have talked about this kind of in our backgrounds in planning. It's like any other land use uh, in in any locality. Every type has to go through the same process, through the comprehensive plan, through rezoning or special use permit. So it's nothing kind of new in that instance, but it's really becoming oriented as to what what type of project this is and how it impacts. And maybe you can talk a little more about that.
1: That's right. I mean, the one new kind of twist is that because it's a public utility, uh, it is subject to 15.2-2232 of the state code. And so, you know, is it consistent uh, with the comprehensive plan? So that's the first hurdle that a lot of communities should be doing, and not all of them are doing it necessarily. And so if you don't pass your 2232 review um, or conduct it, then uh, there really shouldn't be uh, a use permit that follows it. So that is the one kind of little bit of a difference. But, yeah, you're right. It's a land use, and any land use is either by right or it's by use permit, whether it's a special exception permit, conditional use permit, special use permit, whatever the locality chooses to call it, um, it's the same process under state code. Um, And so if it does require a use permit, um, then what are the issues? And I always have characterized that as what are the adverse impacts, uh, the potential adverse impacts associated with the use? Um, Some uses... They have none, although I would argue that it's very few. Other uses uh, have quite a few uh, potential uh, impacts. And there are positive impacts, there are negative impacts. What you're trying to do with land use planning is mitigate uh, any potential adverse impacts of the land use. And so that's what the discussion is kind of centered around. Uh, But the first thing is uh, the, the comp plan review. So with Mecklenburg County, um, they had uh, their first application, went through, no conditions, approved, done. And now their second application is coming up, and they said, whoa, 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 same area, a lot bigger. Uh, first one was 300 acres. This one is 900-plus acres. I think we need some help. And so when they got the help, uh, which Gentry Lock, uh, which is a law firm uh, out of Roanoke, uh, is who they reached out to, then Gentry Lock reached out to us, um, they said, "Well, the first thing we need to do is twenty-two thirty-two for that first one that you did. <laughs> go
0: back, in the other words. Okay. <laughs> so
1: let's take let's take us let's hit the pause button. Let's go back and uh, make sure we cross those t's and dot those i's. Um, and then there's a whole lot of other things that we need to be thinking about. Um, and so one of the decisions Mecklenburg had to make was because you can imagine if you're an applicant, you go, whoa, 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 what's going on? <laughs> there were no rules, and now you're talking about there being rules." Um, so what Mecklenburg said was, we will definitely um, we will definitely uh, exempt uh, – we'll, we will consider this application under the existing rules, which is to say there were very few. Yeah. Um, and it's still a use permit, so those conditions can be mandated regardless. Um, but we're not going to pause you and amend the comp plan and then put you under those rules. We probably could, but we're not going to.
0: Yeah, so speaking about the kind of the universality of, of these type of applications and special use permits, and, and we've been tracking it here in VACO in different areas, obviously there seems to be somewhat of a, a conflict with agricultural land. Um, and so maybe you can talk about how that gets incorporated into some of these conditions.
1: Well, you know, uh, I'm not uh, – I don't have the industry lens, so I'm not 100 percent sure what it is they look for in a site other than uh, large tracts of land that they can amass for you know a reasonable price. That are however, probably
0: relatively flat and well-draining. However too. they define yeah. <laughs> it,
1: they, they want flat supposedly, although the 900-acre site in Mecklenburg was rolling pasture land. Mm-hmm. The 300-acre site in Mecklenburg was partly forested. So I've seen quite a few projects that deforest the land. The the land is timbered, and then the panels are put up. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things you'll hear a lot from the industry is it'll be put back exactly the way it was before once it's decommissioned. And that's hard for me to envision. It's hard for me to envision anything 30 or 40 years from now. But if it was wooded um, and and you timbered it, and now you've got panels on it for two generations, and now you're going to re it. That's going to take, what, another two generations? Depends on what kind of sure. timber it was. That's a, that's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time to borrow uh, a piece of land and put it back exactly the way it used to be. Um, so, yes, ag land is a prime target. Um, and there is actually a such thing as prime ag land in Virginia, Uh, Mecklenburg County uh, actually uses that definition uh, or references that term in their comprehensive plan. Um, And that's one of the things that in our studies we said should be avoided, uh, is that these uh, facilities should not be located on prime agricultural land. Now, in the case of Mecklenburg County, a very large percentage of the county is prime agricultural land. Um, And I don't know that they even appreciate uh, locally how precious that is. It seems to them they have plenty of it. It's everywhere. But uh, that kind of land classification is is rare even in the Commonwealth of Virginia, let alone across the country. And yet they have a cute little thing that tends to attract these facilities called high-power transmission lines. And they've got uh, a bunch of them. Um, They've got a nice little facility down there uh, called uh, Microsoft uh, who wanted to put a data center down there. So then they got even more power. And they got even more transmission lines. And so now these solar companies uh, are looking at Mecklenburg going, wow, you've got ag land uh, along these transmission lines and a ton of capacity. We want to get there first. Now, not all of them are going to be able to use it. The industry doesn't talk about this when (laughs) your use permit is being considered. But if the county approves, let's say they get five and they approve all five, two or three of them are going to be able to get onto that grid, but the others are not.
0: They would have to build extra infrastructure, maybe a substation or or something else. You know, that's important because one of the things that when we've been doing our research here at VACO, we found provisions of the state code in 15.2 where a locality can work with the actual uh, incumbent utilities like Dominion or APCO on where are they going to be placing their high voltage transmission lines, 150 KV or above, and get some of that information. And so it might be a a proactive way to understand where would these things locate or where would you actually want them to locate vis-a-vis, you know, some of that prime agricultural land. And it's interesting you bring up uh, the issue of the prime agricultural soils because we're even getting groups like the American Battlefield Trust, Piedmont Environmental Council that are out in these communities making that same argument that we need to kind of protect those high quality soils that are very productive. Of course, that kind of runs into the thing of, of what is pressuring uh, these, these types of projects in Virginia, you know, one is you mentioned Microsoft. There's a lot of big fortune 500 companies that have these renewable energy targets. And so they're willing to pay prime money. There's the issue that the cost of these panels has gone down in the international market. So it's relatively cheap to produce. And then there's also the fact that with all this money there, if you're say renting 500 acres of land to a farmer, Uh, and then a company comes along and says, we'll double that or triple that. I mean, the economics are there to make that land use change. And of course the, the last thing, and this is one that VACO is particularly interested in is the tax incentives that the state is doing. And maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the, the issues there with the tax incentives. And then Chris and I can come in with some of the work we've been doing in the general assembly.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, there's definitely uh, an incentive for the industry, obviously. Um, The money is there. The the economics is there. Um, The landowner, it almost seems like a no-brainer. It's the farmer's 21st century 401K. Um, For the locality, it's less clear of a benefit. Um, In some counties, uh, it could be a fairly significant amount. If you're talking 40... $50,000 $50,000 a year. But a lot of counties like Mecklenburg were like, really? Uh, that, that's not anything, you know? That's nothing. Um, so I think that tax credit that Virginia has, while it was well intended, uh, perhaps isn't needed. Uh, that 80% that uh, saves the industry and does not go into the coffers of the local government uh, really unbalances the equation quite a bit. I think there would be less resistance, um, to the siting of these things by localities if there was a stronger, more vibrant revenue source for them that they could point to over that horizon of 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, and to that point, you know, and
0: this is where Vaco comes in, is for our listeners who aren't familiar, the state back in 2014 and then they modified it again in 2016, mandated that uh, solar panels for energy production would be exempt uh, from your local personal property tax, which is really your machine and tool tax for those localities that have it. The way it's ended up with the 2016 revision is anything greater than five megawatts in size gets a mandatory 80 percent exemption. Uh, and how that's important to a locality is, you know, that money is is something that any other industry would have to pay. Uh, and it goes into your local coffers. And it's a significant source of money Chris, talk about uh, VACO's interaction with it with this past General Assembly and what we decided to do uh, to address some of those issues.
2: Sure. Well, thanks, Joe. Um, As you said, there were a number of issues that really came up um, at our annual conference and summer conference kind of leading into this that we've already touched on. Um, The concern about a loss of prime agricultural land, uh, concern about flexibility and negotiating deals with developers, um, and then the overarching concern of a loss of potential revenue, um, especially as solar has been booming here in Virginia, as you're aware. Um, what once was a slow trickle is now a pretty big downpour as solar developers come into the Commonwealth um, and are kind of going gangbusters. And A lot of localities uh, were growing concerned about that loss of potential revenue. Um, so coming into the General Assembly session, we kind of targeted that uh, personal tax exemptions or property tax exemptions, excuse me, um, and worked with Senator Louise Lucas to try to adopt some sort of remedy for it or to give, give some of the power back to the localities. Um, so we introduced Senate Bill 902, or SB 902, that sought to cap that 80% exemption at 100 megawatts. As it moved its way through the General Assembly, that was ultimately changed to 150 megawatts, but it did ultimately afford localities the option to go above that 80% mark um, for anything over 150 or negotiate around in there should they really want to work with the developers.
0: Yeah, I think it's important for our listeners to understand there's still always the local option option under other existing legislation to negotiate what that sort of incentive might be over time. So that, w- that was a success. And I think you've heard some um, uh, recently in Stafford Regional meeting some reaction to that bill getting passed. Can you talk about that a little?
2: Sure. Uh, it, it was a tremendous success. It kind of breezed through both chambers, to be fair, um, especially after it was amended. Um, ultimately, it was amended one last time before passage um, to make sure that it was enacted Um at a certain point in time, but since then there's been a lot of really positive reaction, both because it has empowered localities to reclaim some of this lost t um, authority that they they said they need really in a lot of cases but it also does give them the opportunity to leverage a number of bargaining tools with developers as they come in um so we've you know in our regional meetings we did eight or nine of them this year we've had a lot of positive uh, reception from that a lot of folks who are now a little more eager to dive more into the weeds of this issue and see you know what can they work out in their own counties now
0: yeah and a couple nuances i want to touch on with both of you on this one is First off, on the um, M&T tax that applies, one of the nuances of state code, and this is for any um, electric generating facility, if it's 25 megawatts or greater in size, whatever your M&T rate you're applying actually goes to your underlying real estate rate, which in most cases is going to be uh, less in most localities. So for some of these larger um, applications, you're going to see even less revenue, even with that 80 percent exemption. So, that's one thing to keep in mind. The other is to really work with your local commissioner of revenues and understanding what are the full tax implications. Because when you do switch from an agricultural use to now producing power on this land, you also change the tax classification, which should be positive. And if you're under land use valuation law, you'll get at least five years of rollback. But now there is one interesting issue, Darren, and this came up in Mecklenburg, and it has to do with. How is this equipment valued under the local composite index and the you know the total value of real estate? And we think we have an answer, but maybe you can just go a little bit into that.
1: Well, the county was very concerned about that, uh, and ultimately they ended up getting a letter, I believe, from the Department of Taxation that basically said, uh, "No, it will not you know count against you. We will not uh, simultaneously." Uh, waive 80% of your revenue and yet count that revenue 100% toward your uh, composite index. And your local ability to pay, yeah. But I think uh, the county's reaction was, okay, uh, that's one letter. Um, we'd feel a whole lot better about it if uh, the state uh, weighed in on it at a higher level than uh, than just that one position. Um, Greensville County uh, kind of has seems to have a similar opinion. Uh, from what I've observed, as do uh, many other localities. So, you know, the Composite Index is an animal in, to itself. And-, and we should
0: probably stop here one second because not maybe all listeners understand the, the what LCI, Local Composite Index, is. But it's basically, it's a formula where um, the state determines what your share of K-12 through education funding was going to be per student based on your ability to pay. And it's kind of a complex formula, but that's why we wanted to touch on it. And one of the things that I did not mention, but uh, I'll mention it now, is that when this podcast is up on our website, we're going to provide a links to a lot of different resources. One would be the letter from the commissioner, links to the DEQ website on how these things go through that permitting process, um, as well as uh, the work that you did in Mecklenburg. You did a report that I think is is rather uh, portable to other localities on the issues that they should look at. So I wanted to make sure that that everybody knew that. Um, so that's great in understanding that. Um you know, Chris, as we're looking at the upcoming General Assembly, what, what are the issues that VECO is looking at, um, you know, in educating our members and, and potentially taking um, legislative positions?
2: Sure. So there are, there are a number that I would love to highlight. Um, really quickly, at the highest level, I will note that, um, as our listeners are aware, you know, BACO operates through a series of steering committees, one of which is the Environment and Agriculture Committee, which does handle a lot of these issues. Um, and we separately created an agriculture subcommittee this year to more targeted, or in a more targeted way, try to address some of these issues um, that maybe were escaping kind of the broader gaze. Um, but beyond that, there are a number of things we're looking into. Um, As you said, uh, and I believe Darren mentioned earlier, um, the idea of decommissioning sites has started to become an issue that a number of our members have flagged. Um, We're trying to look more into that, do a little more research into that, um, both about what the code currently allows for um, and what our localities are interested in. Um, We are interested as well in uh, a PBR reform, essentially. Um, So what is PBR? Explain that. You're right. I should have mentioned this (laughs) earlier. Uh, So the permit by rule process, or PBR process, is a more expedited way to receive clearance to actually put these solar uh, facilities in. And that's Um, clearance from the state, Yes, correct? Yes. yes. Um, That was actually another one of the kind of angles from which this uh, bill I referred to earlier, SB 902, was... um, kind of initiated was a way to keep up with this PBR process as it continues to grow larger and larger and larger. Um, We had initially introduced a budget amendment that sought for the DEQ to um, kind of investigate the PBR process, look into if it was kind of overtaxed. Um, numbers-wise and reform that, we ultimately uh, agreed to withdraw the budget amendment and the DEQ is eventually um, going to actually be looking more into this issue uh, going forward. Another issue that we've really flagged going forward um, is less land use but more uh, along the lines of stormwater. Um, There have been a lot of questions uh, that have arisen about the implications of stormwater both during construction and after the facility is actually installed, um, as well as water usage for something as simple as cleaning. Uh, these facilities. A lot of our members have flagged that as, an on, as a new issue that they really want us to dig into more.
0: Yeah, I mean, you take, a, there's one um, project that's being proposed in Western Spotsylvania. It's actually outside of the PBR process because it's so big. I think the, the high sheen goes 150 megawatts, right. it's 500 megawatts. They've actually gotten clearance from the SEC, what they call a certificate of public need and necessity. They found it in the public interest. They still need to get local land use approval. But they're talking six to 9,000 acres, and where are they going to get the water to draw from to, to clean those? Because they don't kind of clean on themselves.
1: Yeah, so, and water has not been an issue that has come up in any of the literature or in any of the other counties. I mean, cleaning the panels is not something, I, I'll be honest, I'd never even thought of it. And I've done quite a bit of research on this, uh, but it did come up with Spotsylvania County. And as the scale of these things continues to increase, it just goes to show you, I mean, you drill a well – to To clean panels on a five hundred acre site that's fine, but talk thousands of acres, several wells um, It's just the scale of these facilities is what the the main issue is. You've got the location uh, mm-hmm. the scale, potential concentration uh screening and buffering, and then, as Chris mentioned, decommissioning uh, those are your big uh issues. You know, how do you properly decommission one of these? Uh, during the Great Recession, uh, planners all over the Commonwealth saw developers disappear literally overnight. The, the subdivision was left sitting. The roads weren't finished. The erosion sediment control was sitting. The stormwater was left sitting. And so when we went to pull those bonds, either um, insurance bonds or letters, letters of credit or anything short of cash escrow, which no one wants to do, um, then you have um you you've got little recourse um and so uh so we would pull the letter of credit bank would say no we we don't want to do that I'd say wait, what do you mean it's a it's a guaranteed letter of credit you you have to do that so it's not uh necessarily as easy as it should be as it's supposed to be and and so that reality is kind of still sticks with us uh, as practitioners. We had never really seen that or had to use that before. Um, and now you're getting facilities where you're talking 20, 30, 40 years, thousands of acres. And, uh, oh, you just post a letter of credit. it will be fine.
0: Well, you know, they, they, and it's interesting you mentioned this, because this, when we've been out and speaking in various counties, and we have been on this issue, that issue of decommissioning comes up. And one thing that I've been hearing and, and we're seeing is you have a lot of independent companies come in for these permits they'll get the DEQ permit approval uh, letter, they'll get the local permit, but then they'll switch, they'll sell the facility over to a Dominion Power, which I think gives some of our localities a little more comfort knowing that Dominion Power is here to stay from the decommissioning side of it. I do want to touch on that a little bit um, in terms of of DEQ, Chris. You mentioned their PBR process. And why I think it's going to be important for our members is we had a situation where I was getting a call from a county administrator when they up on their website, and we'll provide this link to the resource, they do these notices of intent for these PBR applications, and it'll give the county, the location, the number of megawatts, the acreage. And so citizens are getting notice about it, but yet the applicant hasn't even come to the county yet. Right. So part of what we want to get with the PBR process is, hey, let's get the state and the locals working together so people aren't blindsided. I do uh, want to note uh, recently in Campbell County, I read about it in the news, uh, Apex Energy actually kind of went about it the way they got the local approval process first before even going to DEQ, and I think that was probably a a smart thing to do if they knew it was going to happen. As we're wrapping up this discussion, one of the things that I wanted to talk about and circle back with this tax incentives is the way that the code was written in 2016, for anything greater than 20 megawatts, that mandatory 80% exemption would expire for projects that didn't begin construction Until January first, twenty twenty-four. So we're going to be bird dogging that. I think you know the conventional wisdom here in Richmond is you put a tax incentive in state code with an expiration date. It tends to keep going forward, and we've seen that over time. There's other little nuance from the twenty sixteen law, and it had to do with uh, the sales tax exemption for the purchase of not just solar equipment for producing energy, but also wind equipment producing energy. And that's one that expires in 2027, should that do so. And when you start to see these bigger projects, there might be a hit to state and local coffers that we have not realized yet. Um, With that, I think we've run out about time. I think we've covered a lot of topics. I know, Chris, did you have anything else that you wanted to add?
2: I would just say stay tuned to everyone. Uh, I know one thing that's come up a number of times was kind of a lot of our members have asked us to be a clearinghouse house of ideas and put together a lot of information. So as Joe's mentioned a number of times today, we'll make sure that we have everything online um, to make sure that no one's ever left in the dark on any of these issues. And we can keep uh, pushing information out there and helping you when you need it.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I would be interested in, in VACO receiving feedback on this podcast on things that we weren't able to discuss or didn't discuss. I'd be happy to do another one. Uh, it's a complex issue. Uh, the land use issues, we didn't dig into too deep. Uh, who knew 20 minutes could go so fast? Uh, yeah. But uh, feedback, uh, we could tailor uh, content to, to that specifically, and uh, we want to be a resource uh, along with our partner, uh, who is VACO, and, um, and help these localities with, with these land use issues.
0: Great. Well, thank you both. And that is it for episode five of the Baco County Pulse. Thank you.